been making our way uh, verse by verse through this book and haven't made a whole lot of progress, but uh, the subject that came up in Acts chapter 2 has been such a divisive, all-present um, source of controversy in America that I thought I needed to spend uh, two, three, probably just three weeks uh, dealing with it. We'll finish it up next week, but if you would... Uh, listen to God's Word, Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They are full of new wine. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is a light unto our path. It is intended to guide our steps. And that is our desire, Father, that you would indeed guide our steps. Please uh, anoint my lips. Enable me to faithfully preach your word and each one of us uh, to hear it and live it out. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe seated. <clears throat> when I was in China, I found it uh, quite difficult to get around uh, because I knew zero Chinese. I'd be in a restaurant by myself trying to order something, and I thought I knew what I ordered, but something strange came on my plate. Maybe they were playing tricks on me, I don't know, but uh, I did find it a little bit tough to get around. And people were joking about some of the strange attempts of Americans to try to penetrate the American market. Uh, when Coca-Cola first introduced their product there, they were trying to make it sound similar to Coca-Cola. And it was Kekukela, I guess it was, which they didn't realize meant uh, bite the wax tadpole. <laughs> or, depending on the dialect, it could mean female horse stuffed with wax. Uh, there were some other faux pas I'm not going to repeat here, but uh, <laughs> Pepsi's Come Alive with the Pepsi Generation translated into Pepsi Brings Your Ancestors Back from the Grave. <laughs> and um, the original translation for Kentucky Fried Chicken, Finger Licking Good, was Eat Your Fingers Off. <laughs> uh, language can be a major barrier, and I'm convinced one of the greatest barriers to missions was set up by God himself when he, at the Tower of Babel, divided up all of the nations into various languages. Now, it also puts a stop and a stem to the advancement of humanism. And so that's a good thing. You know, even when you've got uh, people uh, translating, you know, at the United Nations, that does not filter down into the general populace. And it still tends to frustrate the attempts of nations to... Uh, to get together. But what we began seeing two weeks ago is that God, using this symbolism here, was talking about breaking through the barriers that were set up at the Tower of Babel and uh, uh, bringing into the church people from every tribe and nation. 
And last time we began to dig into the meaning and the significance of tongues. It's a very hotly debated subject. I don't even pretend to think I'm going to have the last word on this on this subject. But what I thought that I would do uh, last week and this week is trying to look at what, at least in my mind, seems abundantly clear, focusing on that and leaving the unclear things unsaid. And the first thing I believe that is clear is that the speakers in Acts 2 clearly had the gift of tongues. Now, you might wonder why in the world would that even be a subject that would come up, uh, because it seems like they're talking in tongues there. But I mentioned that there are a number of scholars who try to drive a wedge between Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, which discusses tongues in in those chapters. And the reason for that, and this is both charismatics and non-charismatics who do that, the reason for it is that their interpretation of Corinthians makes tongues look totally different than the tongues in Acts chapter 2, and they admit that... Acts 2 does not even closely resemble the kind of tongues that goes on in charismatic circles. And so there has been a concerted effort to say that what this is here is the gift of hearing, not the gift of speaking. In other words, they were speaking in either Hebrew or Aramaic, but all of the people from those various nations heard what they were saying in their own language. And we looked at a number of reasons in Acts chapter 2 why that simply cannot be the case. I'll just mention one here. Verse 4 says they began to speak with other tongues. Now, it's true. The other verses say they heard them speak with other tongues, but they still spoke. It was language, other languages that were coming out of their mouth. And uh, you'll have to see uh, the last sermon for some of the details of uh, what we're just quickly reviewing here. A second thing that... I felt was quite clear is that they were speaking a true language. Now, some charismatics say that this was not a true language here in Acts 2. Many, if not most charismatics, say it's not a true language in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Not all. Many charismatics still um, uh, say, yes, it's a true language that's being spoken at that point. But we saw some of the reasons why many charismatics have gravitated away from that. And they say that what's going on in 1 Corinthians is the inarticulate groanings of Romans 8, the inarticulate attempted prayers of Romans 8. And um, uh, we, today we're not going to get into what Romans 8 talks about. There are groanings in the Spirit, you know, there's no question about that. And if they want to claim that that is what the present-day tongues is, uh, you know, that's another issue altogether. But what I want to emphasize is that is not the same as what 1 Corinthians was talking about. We saw a number of reasons last week for that. One of them is given in verse 4 of Acts 2. Last phrase, it says, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the Greek word for utterance is defined in Strong's uh, Dictionary as to enunciate clearly, to declare, to speak forth. In other words, it was articulate speech. And secondly, it's clearly called a language here. Uh, two of the words for language are used to describe uh, this tongues here, as well as in 1 Corinthians, there's three words there. Uh, secondly, in verses 9 and following, it lists the languages, and then the text clearly says that they spoke in those languages. Third, we began to look at evidences that the tongues in Acts chapter 2 are identical to the tongues in 1 Corinthians. And... Uh, Again, most people try to reject that, but we looked at a number of reasons. In your outline, there actually should be a Roman numeral 3 in front of point A. Um, 
And so we've already covered uh, four proofs that they are the same. In fact, um, you can really think of 1 Corinthians as being God's inspired commentary on what the tongues in 1 Corinthians was all about. Under point A, I gave 16 proofs that tongues in 1 Corinthians was a true language. And I won't repeat all of those. You'll have to get the sermon if you are getting into it um, uh, midpoint here. But And I would encourage you to do so, because that is a critical point in terms of understanding what is going on here. So clear that it was a true language that was being spoken. Uh, for example, Paul uses three words that describe language in secular and religious um, uh, literature to describe tongues. Uh, we saw that the gift of interpretation literally is the gift of translation. Well, what is translation? It's taking the words that are spoken in one language and conveying the meaning into words in another language. If there wasn't a language, there wouldn't be a need for translation. Uh, and, of course, Paul uses the word words to describe tongues. It's not meaningless babble, it's words. Verses 21 through 22, Paul insists that the tongues of 1 Corinthians is the same as the tongues in Isaiah 28. And everybody agrees the tongues in Isaiah 28 was a foreign language. It was Assyrian, and it was uh, something that could easily be recognized. And so there's no question it was a true language, 16 proofs for that. Under point B, we saw that both Acts and Corinthians speak of varieties of tongues. Now, you would expect that that phrase would be describing the same phenomenon. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, he uses as parallel the varieties of tongues with kinds of languages. And then next, under point C, I gave three proofs that the tongues in 1 Corinthians has an evangelistic purpose. Now, charismatics strongly resist that, even if they recognize it maybe in Acts 2. But uh, Paul explicitly says, 1 Corinthians 14, 22, Therefore, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Paul says the focus was outside the church, and yet where is the focus in the modern charismatic movement? It's with other believers. It's inside the church uh, that it goes on. And so the evangelist Paul, who was coming constantly into contact with people of various nations, um, was speaking in tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, 18 through 19. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church... I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. He was saying his focus was outside the church. In fact, the ratio was 10,000 to five in terms of how much he spoke in tongues outside the church. Why? Well, so he was an evangelist. He was coming constantly in contact with unbelievers, and there was a need to cross that language barrier. There was no way Paul would have been able to learn all of those languages quickly. So God gave him that miracle of, of tongues. So it had the same focus, same purpose as in Acts chapter 2. Now, that may not seem like such a significant point. If you've studied charismatic issues very much, you know it's a hugely significant point. Uh, one point of contrast that charismatics use is to say that Corinthians is only talking about a prayer language, whereas Acts, it had other purposes. And they'll typically point, in fact, if you want to follow along, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, to prove that tongues was always addressed to God, never addressed to man. And again, not all charismatics hold to this, but this seems to be a majority view. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. 
Well, it seems like pretty solid proof that, you know, he's only speaking to God until you keep on reading and Paul says, I don't want you doing that, okay? He says, yes, if you're having an untranslated tongues, uh, it's only going to be speaking to God, but I don't want you doing that. I want the whole church to be edified. And over and over again, you see this emphasis. Uh, Gordon Fee says, no, that's not true. The tongue speaker, quote, the tongue speaker is not addressing fellow believers, but God. But take a look at verse 6. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, etc.? He was speaking to men. He was teaching them through tongues. Look at verse 21. And the law is written with men of other tongues and other lips. I will speak to this people. So God intended to speak to people with tongues. Look at verse 22. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Verse 28 tells the person who's speaking in tongues, if it's not translated, he says, let him speak to himself and to God. And we'll look more at that passage in, in a little bit, but it's clear that tongues was spoken to man as well as to God, not just to God. And so, even though it could be used for prayer, it had other purposes uh, as well, and the whole passage, the whole chapter is arguing against doing anything in the worship services does not edify the congregation as a whole. And I gave some other purposes. Now that brings us up to today, one of the most hotly debated parts of this whole tongues issue, and it's this, do the tongue speaker in Corinth, do they understand what they were saying? I say yes, charismatics to a man will insist that they did not. That's one of the only things that they're agreed on, that they don't understand what they are saying. Now, there's a lot of good scholars that agree with them. I'll have to, I'll have to say that. And so if you just want to count noses of scholars, you could just write off my sermon that I'm going to be preaching on today. But there are a number of good scholars that say, no, absolutely, the whole thrust of this chapter is talking about their understanding. And so I want to at least expose you to what the debate is and try to convince you of um, what I think is fairly clear. And so let's start with some of the evidence. First of all, if you would make sure you're turning to 1 Corinthians 14, let me read verses 2 through 4 again. I've already read this, but I'm going to be making another deduction from this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 2 through 4. He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I want you to notice two things about verse 2. First of all, Paul says that a tongue speaker, when there is no translation, is speaking mysteries. Mysteries. Uh, that's a transliteration of the Greek word musterion, which does not mean something unintelligible. It does not mean something non-understandable, but it refers to knowledge that is held by the musterion holders, but is not known to those that they are speaking to. In fact, it was a word coined by the mystery religions to... Uh, indicate that there was something known by an in-group, the mystery religion, and uh, that was not known by those who were outside of that mystery religion. Now, it was taken over into the Bible uh, to refer to teachings that were revealed to the disciples, but nobody else knew the meaning of them. Let me just give you some examples. Matthew 13, 11. 
Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. They were mysteries because the disciples knew them. It wouldn't be a secret if nobody knew it. A secret is something you know, and there's a few other people that know, right? But there's a bunch of other people you're keeping it from. And that's exactly the meaning of the word mystery here. They knew it. The people outside did not. Mark 4.11. To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables. Luke 8.10. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And so whether you're talking about biblical usage or secular usage, it doesn't matter. The term musterion always without exception refers to something that is known by the speaker of the mystery, but is not known to some others. Uh, Otherwise, it wouldn't be a secret. Let me repeat that again. The term musterion, always without exception, refers to something known by the speaker of the mystery, but unknown to the uninitiated. Let me give you some dictionary definitions. Lau and Nida's dictionary say, Musterion is the content of that which has not been known before, but which has been revealed to an in-group or restricted constituency. And so the reason tongues without interpretation was speaking mysteries is because maybe the speaker understood it, maybe two or three of the foreigners who were in the congregation understood it, but it was a total secret between them. Nobody else understood a word that they were saying. Uh, No exceptions to that definition. Now, if you read charismatic commentaries on this verse, you will see them stumbling all over themselves uh, over this. Uh, Gordon Fee, for example, claims that this, in this verse, mystery cannot have the same meaning that it has everywhere else in the New Testament. Okay? And you can see why he has to say that. It's very convenient to change the definition of the term, you know, if it doesn't meet, fit your interpretation. But Leonard Coppus has examined every instance of the use of this term, and he says this, In each instance, mystery is truth made known. Now, maybe hidden from others, but if it's not made known to somebody, it is not a mystery. It is not a secret. Um, he says it is truth made known. And so one of the reasons that they were not supposed to speak in another language, if there was nobody that understood that, if it was not being translated, is God didn't want secrets in the church. He wanted everybody to be able to be edified. Um With that definition, take a look at the verse again. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, and that's a small s spirit, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. His own spirit understands, no one else does. That is the point that he is making. Let's take a look at uh, evidence number two. Notice that my interpretation flows naturally into the next two verses, which indicate that when a person prophesies, everybody in the congregation is benefited, they're edified. Why? Because everybody in the congregation understands what he is saying. Uh, Look at verse 3. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Now, that's why verse 5 says, if you translate the tongues, then it is of equal value to prophecy. Why? Because everybody is edified, right? He says, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. 
For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless, indeed, he interprets that the church may receive edification. Notice that word unless. Unless, indeed, he interprets or translates. That word unless indicates that um, uh, it, it is not less important than prophecy if it is translated. Okay? So Matthew Henry summarizes the conclusion that Paul is making. He says, what cannot be understood can never edify. Let me repeat that because that's really the heart of today's sermon. What cannot be understood can never edify. Okay, let's read verse 4 again. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Well, the only logical conclusion you can come to is that he understood what he was saying. Otherwise, how could he be edified? You see the logic there? In verses 2 through 5, Paul is saying there isn't anything uh, that is edifying unless it is understood. Now he says the speaker in tongues edifies himself. Logically, you have to say that he understood what he is saying. Here's the conclusion that Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's commentary makes. The speaker edifies himself as he understands the meaning of what the particular tongue expresses. Charles Hodge. They were edifying and therefore intelligible to him who uttered them. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I probably don't even need to go on to any of the other proofs because those two proofs annihilate the, the charismatic interpretation on tongues. But I do think that they have some legitimate objections, and I think we need to go through the passage. If a tongue speaker always understood what he was saying, then the tongues in this chapter would be identical to Acts 2. This is the thing that divides the, between the two passages in many people's minds. And um, if they understood, then what charismatics are experiencing today is something different than 1 Corinthians 14 is describing, right? And so it's an important issue. And I'm not going to get into whether what charismatics experience has some other legitimate use. Theoretically, it could. That's just a totally different subject. What I want to deal with is, is it in any way like what goes on in Acts 2 or in 1 Corinthians 14? Does it resemble biblical tongues at all? Um, I know people who have been given the miraculous ability to speak another language. They understood what they were saying. Some, some of my friends were given it during a short missions trip, and they lost it after that time. There's other people that I know who have had that permanently. It's just the rest of their life they've been able to speak this other language. And there's a, a few people that have been given this ability to speak a new language every time they went to a new language group. And so I do believe that uh, this tongues, this miracle ability continues to be there, but it doesn't look anything like modern charismatic tongues. Let's move on. Let's look at more proofs that tongues was indeed understood by the speaker. Third proof. Paul insists on intelligibility all throughout this chapter, point after point. He just hammers this home. Why? Well, I believe in part it was to oppose the the tongues and the prophecies that were going on in the pagan religions in Corinth. For example, the religion of Apollos had tongue speakers. You can read that anywhere. Uh, they prophesied. They had, um, in the Dionysian uh, religion, people who spoke in tongues, I believe demonically, and they prophesied demonically. And uh, Paul said it never works the way it works with the pagans who didn't understand what they were talking about, who always the demons were bypassing their mind. It didn't work that way. So let's take a look at some examples. First of all, the relationship between the spirit and the human speaker are described with the same language for prophecy 
as they are for the gift of tongues. Now, this is, this is really hugely significant. For example, though it is the Holy Spirit who moves the prophet to get new revelation, gives the revelation, it's the prophet who speaks. He says that you may prophesy. He who prophesies. And he says that over and over. The same with tongues. He who speaks in a tongue. I wish you all spoke with tongues. Now, it may not seem like a very profound statement, but what it indicates is that the Spirit never bypasses the human mind. Okay? Think about how the giving of prophetic scripture works. Evangelical Protestants agree that every letter of the Bible was given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's 100% the Word of God. It is inerrant. Uh, so 2 Peter 1.21 says, Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So it originates by God, it was moved by God, it was uttered by God, and yet the same passage indicates it was still spoken by those prophets. And this is an indication as to why it is that you can look at different books of the Bible and it, each of them has unique vocabulary, unique writing styles. Why? Because God is using their minds to give this scripture. And many uh, Reformed people have likened the giving of the scripture to the incarnation of Jesus where God the Son came down, took human nature to himself, and he, uh, when he spoke, he was fully man and he was fully God. And so he spoke as a human, but he also spoke as God. And what he said was God speaking. But there was that human dimension that was in there as well. Well, that's the same way that it was with, um, with the giving uh, of the scriptures. Uh, God speak, spoke, not it, like the pagan religions, you know, where their eyes roll back, they just start going crazy or going out of their mind, and then all of these words are coming out. God never did that. He spoke through the experiences of the people, through the words in the mind of the people. And so in your outline, I point out that Mark 7.10 says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. Yet Exodus 20 says about the giving of those Ten Commandments, God spoke all these words. Exodus 20, verse 1. Now, I think almost every evangelical agrees, whatever kind of prophecy we've seen already, apostleship has ceased, prophecy has ceased, inspired revelation has ceased. I think we go too far if we say that tongues and the other gifts have ceased. Uh, we'll get to that at a, another time. But I think every evangelical agrees that s scriptural prophecy always fashioned this way and that God does not bypass the mind of prophets, that he uses their minds. And so in chapter 14, verse 30, it speaks of a prophet receiving a revelation from God. He didn't make it up. And yet he's able to speak it or he's able to be silent about it, according to verse 29. He's in such control of his mind, he's able to take turns. He's able to stop prophesying when another person starts speaking. Verses 32 through 33, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And it would be confusion if they were like robots, where, you know, like the, 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 the pagans. Paul insists they can control themselves despite the fact that God was the author of that prophecy. Okay, here's the point. Exactly the same language that is used to describe man's role in prophecy is used to describe man's role in tongues. They are the ones doing the speaking throughout this chapter. They are able to keep silent. Verse 28 to consciously take turns speaking. Verse 27, to rationally control their minds throughout the tongue-speaking process. Verses 27 through 28. In fact, it's very interesting. In verse 5, he indicates if there is no translator, he's allowed to translate for himself. 
Now, that's a tough thing to translate for yourself because it's very easy to get mixed up. Anybody who knows uh, several languages and you're, you're speaking this and then you try to speak this and you begin to wonder now, how many phrases did I just translate? Did I translate the whole thing? And they begin to lose uh, some of the things that they translated or repeat themselves. It's a very awkward, difficult thing. But he says, hey, if there are no other translators, it's better than nothing. You can translate for yourself. But how could they do that unless they understood what they were saying? Verse 6 gives another powerful proof that tongues was understood by the speakers. And I want you to notice the rational terms that are used of this tongue speaking. Verse 6, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Now, that word unless indicates that the speaker is still speaking in tongues when he engages in the giving of revelation, knowledge, prophesying, and teaching. Okay? The tongues won't profit anyone unless they are clearly communicating uh, one of those four things he is saying. Well, let's look at each of the four. Revelation is never treated as something unknown. It is the very opposite of unknown. The NIV Greek Dictionary defines apocalypsis as, quote, Revelation, what is revealed, disclosure, to make information known with an implication that the information can be understood. So the speaker already has the revelation, which means he already knows it when he is speaking in tongues, that revelation. Otherwise, it can't be described as a revelation. Can you see that? And um, all that is left now is the communication of that revelation to, in a foreign language to the foreigners and in a, you know, the Greek language, I guess, is what they spoke there through a translator. That's all that is, that, that is left. But you cannot turn revelation into its opposite, something unknown. The second word is knowledge. Who has the knowledge that is being communicated in tongues? It doesn't say it's God that has that knowledge. Obviously, God does. But here it says it's the speaker who's communicating that knowledge. He is communicating knowledge by tongues, which means he knows it, or it is a contradiction in terms. The next word shows that tongue speakers sometimes spoke prophecy when they spoken tongues. Now, unfortunately, some Reformed people think that was the only function that uh, tongues had was to speak prophecy. It was one of them, but it wasn't the only one. And we, we dealt with some of the exegetical problems on that uh, last time. But the main point here is we've already demonstrated that God never bypassed the mind in prophecy. So here's a person who has his mind in gear. He's got a prophecy from the Lord and he is now communicating it through another language, through tongues. Which means what? It means they understood what he was saying. Uh, unlike the pagan religions that were around them. And then the last word in verse 6 is teaching. And since teaching is a clear communication of truth from one speaker to the hearer, the speaker had to know the truth before he could teach the truth. Okay? If he doesn't know what he is saying, he's not doing the teaching, the translator is. Or, or God's doing it and the translator is interpreting the truth, but he's not doing the teaching. But this says he's doing the teaching, which means he knows the teaching that he's communicating in another language. Now, I know that this is um, probably uh, overkill for you, but I'm going to do more overkill. Uh, even at the expense of boring you to tears, this is such an important topic. I felt I had to hammer this and hammer this because otherwise there's a couple of verses later on in this chapter that people may stump you with. I want you to see the consistent theme of this chapter is that the tongue speaker understood what he was saying. 
verses 7 through 8, Paul likens tongues to both playing and listening to musical instruments, even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if a trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? Now, in Thistleton's massive uh, commentary, he points out that the Greek words mean that the instruments were out of tune. Okay, they were out of tune. When they're out of tune, they cannot communicate what the musician is trying to communicate to the people. And again, the problem is not with the musician or the tongue speaker that's being illustrated by that. It's with the instrument or the unknown language. Uh, it's not that the, the speaker or the musician didn't understand what he was doing. It's that the medium, the instrument, was incapable of communicating what he was trying uh, to get across. Uh, obviously, in the second illustration he gives there, it's rather important for soldiers to know the varied calls and what they mean. The one playing the trumpet is trying to communicate a message. And so this illustration, again, reinforces the rationality of the speaker, the importance of rationally communicating uh, that, uh, that, that thought. Fifth, the lack of understanding in verse 9 is with the hearers who don't know the foreign language. So likewise, you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will, will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. Talking needs to be done to someone. Otherwise, it's like talking to the wind. You know, it doesn't accomplish anything. Notice that he doesn't say that the speaker's head is full of air, right? Uh, that he doesn't know what he's saying. Paul is just indicating there is no audience to appreciate what he is saying. Seventh, verse 10 defines tongues as the languages of the world. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world. Furthermore, Paul indicates that these languages all have meaning. Okay? Even if you don't understand them, they still have meaning. It says, and none of them is without significance. Or as the margin says literally, none of them is without meaning. And then he starts with a therefore in verse 11, which means that there is a one-to-one -one parallel between what people in the church were hearing with untranslated tongues and what you would hear if there was a foreigner talking to you and you didn't understand his language. He understands what he's saying, but you don't understand a word of what he is saying. Verse 11, Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Now, foreigners always understand what they are saying. If tongues speaking makes him a foreigner to me by definition, the tongue speaker knows what he is saying just as a foreigner knows what he is saying. Can you see there is a consistent emphasis all the way through that the tongue speakers understood? Now, before we look at the key verses that charismatics appeal to, let me point out that Paul once again puts uh, the onus of responsibility upon the tongue speaker to make sure that he doesn't just edify himself, that he gives edification to the whole congregation. Verse 12, even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for edification for the church that you seek to excel. How do you edify them? Verse 13 tells us by translation. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Now, that brings up the first of three arguments that charismatics used to show that they didn't understand a word of what they were saying. And this is a very important argument on, on their behalf. Their first argument is, if he really understood what he was saying, why in the world would he have to pray that he would be able to interpret? Why would he have to pray that he'd be able to translate? He'd just do it, right? 
Well, it seems like a plausible objection at first, but I want you to look at verse 13. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Here's their objection. If he's praying that he may interpret, he obviously doesn't understand it, but that misses the whole point of Paul's argument, the whole point of Paul's therefore. The therefore. Paul has been insisting all along there can be no edification without knowledge. Verse 12 asks that the whole church be edified. Verse 13 indicates the only way that can be achieved is through translation. But nowhere in verse 13 does it say Paul did not edify himself or the tongue speaker didn't edify himself, or that he didn't understand. Paul assumes, you're going to remember verse 4, he who speaks in tongues edifies himself. He's going to assume you already know that he understands what he is saying, but they're going to object, why does he have to pray? He just translates. And the answer is, being able to translate requires totally different skills than being able to speak in another language. I know several people who are fluent in two or more languages, but they are lousy translators. And my mom knows that very well. She's had to use translators a number of times. And they can be fluent in the other language and in your language, totally fluent, but they're lousy translators. Uh, they, they can translate on paper, but to on the fly, while you are talking, quickly translate into the other, they stumble all over the place. They simply cannot do it. And here is the point. How much more difficult would it be if you are translating for yourself, not translating for somebody else, you're now translating for yourself. It would be very, very difficult. And so Paul is saying in verse 5, it's okay to translate for yourself. Verse 13, he recognized, look, it, it, it's exceedingly awkward to do so. I know that. But if there are no other translators, at least pray that you would be given the gift of translation. If you take a look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10, I'll give you a demonstration that these are two totally separate gifts. He says, to another different kinds of tongues, there's the one gift, to another the interpretation or the translation of tongues, there's the second gift. If speaking in another language automatically made you a good translator, why would he separate them out as two different gifts? They are quite different abilities. It's sort of like Kathy. She had a, a friend at Covenant College who was an incredible organist. Uh, he played in all of the big churches, uh, very, very skilled. And one time he was doing something really fancy on the organ, and she was asking him how he did that sequence. And he said... I don't know how to explain it. I just do it. And uh, it wasn't very helpful, but he did not know how to explain what he was doing. Well, let me just use that as an analogy. Being able to play the organ is like being able to understand and speak in another foreign language. Being able to explain how you play the organ is being able to translate it. Quite different things. And uh, I think we need to, 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 to recognize that. Quite different skills. Now, one objection to that that I've heard <clears throat> is that a person wouldn't need to pray to himself, verse 28, in a different language, if his mother tongue was quite adequate. That's actually not true. I know a professor who knows over 40 languages of, uh, uh, you know, modern languages, and I know several people who know two, three, four languages and are quite fluent in them. And I've heard people tell me when they pray... There are times where there's something that they are trying to express in their prayer that just they cannot do in their mother tongue. 
and they switch midway in their prayers and their private uh, devotions to this other language because it so beautifully captures what they're trying to express to the Lord. My father was fluent in several languages and uh, he had times where he just loved something that he had read in low German. And we asked him, man, it's just... And it didn't come across. It comes across flat, you know, when you try to translate it. And so there's a very good reason why a person might pray to the Lord in various languages. If I knew 15 languages, I'd probably pray in a few of them, you know. But anyway, back to this verse. What verse 5 did was to give permission to a tongue speaker to translate for himself, even though it's awkward, what verse 13 is recognizing. That's tough. You may have to ask for the gift of translation. As I mentioned, my, my mother had many translators, some of whom were good and some were not. It had nothing to do with how fluent they were in the language. Two totally separate gifts. Okay, there's another objection that is... So my point is, that verse fits perfectly into the interpretation, the traditional interpretation that I'm giving here. Now, there is another objection that is always brought up, and that's in verse 14. Verse 14 says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. They say if a man's understanding is unfruitful, it means he simply doesn't understand. He doesn't know what he is saying. Uh, Gordon Fee is an amazingly gifted commentary. I love his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He's a charismatic. Uh, he takes a, a different approach, and he, he finds his interpretation, interestingly, of this passage exceedingly awkward. He uh, takes a whole paragraph trying to explain what he calls, quote, a very difficult sentence in the middle of this argument. Well, it's only difficult because his argument's wrong. <laughs> uh, but he's referring to the part where it says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. He, he, he points out how the explanatory four at the beginning there ties verse 14 logically together with verse 13's demand for interpretation but he doesn't want to say that the tongue speaker needs to understand the tongue in order to be edified. That goes completely contrary to his theology of tongues. And so he admits the explanatory four seems out of place. Secondly, he finds it very awkward that Paul says, my spirit prays, because that seems to imply understanding. So he opts for making the word spirit into a capital S spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit. Here's what his commentary says. When I pray in tongues, I pray in the spirit but it does not benefit my mind. Well, then in the next paragraph, he admits, you know, the word the is not in front of spirit. And he says, the possessive my and the contrast with my mind indicate that he is here referring to his own spirit at prayer. So he tries to compromise and he says, well, maybe it's something like this. It's my small s slash big s spirit uh, that is praying. And so throughout the next paragraphs, he has my small s slash big s spirit. Very, very awkward. And he recognizes it. Now, I give that as background to demonstrate that charismatics recognize that there is a apparent contradiction. I say a real contradiction, but an apparent contradiction in their strongest verse to prove that speakers do not understand what they are uh, are saying. As far as I'm concerned, this verse and the next one are the only verses in this whole chapter in which charismatics have a leg to stand on in saying they don't understand what they are saying. And it's the last phrase that they appeal to. The last phrase says, my understanding is unfruitful. And so they claim this means Paul did not understand a word that he was saying when he was talking in tongues. His mind was bypassed. And so when his spirit prayed, 
bypassed his mind and they say verse 15 bears this out. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will also pray with the understanding. So there you have it. Spirit is contrasted with understanding. Well, at first it may seem like an impressive argument, but I want us to examine the text a little bit closer and I want Paul to define his own terms. And uh, if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 2.11, we're going to first of all define the term spirit. And I'm going to show you how Paul and actually the rest of the New Testament uses mind and spirit interchangeably. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 11. Paul says, For what man knows the things of the man except the spirit of the man which is in him? He is saying the only thing that knows the man is the spirit of the man. So the spirit of the man is the knowing faculty. And that's pretty standard interpretation in any commentary. The spirit was the knowing faculty there. And even if you take uh, Gordon Fee's forced exegesis in chapter 14 and say that it was the Holy Spirit who was Paul's spirit, look at the next verse in 1 Corinthians 2. Verse 12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who was from God, that he might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. See, the idea that the Spirit gives us unknowable, irrational, or pre-rational things is so foreign to Scripture. The Spirit helps us to know. But the main point here is that the Spirit, Paul's Spirit, was the knowing faculty. And you find this all throughout the Scripture. Mark 2.8. Immediately, Jesus knew in His Spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. He knew in His Spirit. The Spirit is not the unconscious part of man. It's the rational part of man. And to say that a person can pray with his own spirit and not have his mind in gear at all is contrary to Pauline theology, to Markan theology, to all of biblical theology. The rest of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians shows that the spirit always produces rationality. So with that as a background, let's see what Paul is trying to say in these verses. Verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue... My spirit prays, and that's clearly a reference to his human spirit. There's no article V in front of there. It's Paul's spirit's praying. But in verse 15, it's highly probable that Paul switches to the Holy Spirit because he puts the article V in front of it. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. Notice there's no my there either. It's not just Paul's understanding, but understanding as a principle that he is arguing for. I will sing with the Spirit. I will also sing with the understanding. And so what Paul is saying is that Christianity is nothing like the pagan religions in Corinth that spoke in tongues, had ecstatic prophecies, where people were demonic tongues, and that is very, very clear. Even charismatics admit that they've run across demonic tongues. Then there is a psychological phenomenon where your mind becomes, your tongue becomes disengaged with your, it just rattles on without your, 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 your mind. And then there's people who just fake it because they feel left out. I think there's four kinds uh, that, are, uh, that are in evidence there. And um, uh, in the ancient world, as I was saying, there was the cult of Apollo and there was the cult of Dionysius in Corinth that these people, many of them may have been converted from, and they saw these people who had their minds completely bypassed when they spoke and they prophesied. And Paul is saying, God never does that. Demons tend to do that. Why? Because they are fighting against any part of God's image in man. They are fighting against uh, God's rationality. But when Paul prays with the help of the Spirit in tongues... 
His mind is always in gear. Um, <clears throat> now they will object, okay, this contradicts the last phrase of verse 14, which says, my mind is unfruitful. Now, if this meant my mind does not understand what it is saying, it's the only phrase in the whole chapter that shows that. And if you look in Gordon Fee's charismatic commentary, even he admits that quite frequently this has an active meaning of does not bear fruit in the lives of others. And that's a quote from his, uh, his commentary, does not bear fruit in the lives of others. I would say it always has that meaning. But because he is so stuck on this idea that they do not understand why, because modern tongue speakers do not understand, he imports back into this that, that these people cannot, cannot do that. It's a very odd interpretation of that phrase. And so on Fee's interpretation, the last phrase says... My understanding has no understanding. Do you see the contradiction there? That's, that's the effect of his argument. He is saying, my understanding has no understanding. Or if you translate news as mind, my mind has no mind, is what he is in effect saying. <clears throat> saying that Paul's understanding is unfruitful is quite different from saying that Paul's understanding is non-existent. Can you see that? Saying that Paul's mind is unfruitful is quite different from saying that his mind is non-existent. If the thinking spirit is the fruit tree, the tree is alive. It's very much alive. But because there is no translation, no one else can pick the fruit of this understanding and benefit. I think that is what Paul is getting at. And so there is a perfect harmony all the way through the chapter. And the only translation change that needs to be made is in verse 15, where you capitalize the word spirit. And then there is a perfect harmony. Now, on Gordon Fee's interpretation, there is point after point from verse 2 and on that he has to explain away. And I think it is a clear explaining away. And certainly in this verse, he not only has heartburn over the word for at the beginning of verse 14 and the words my spirit, he also makes a muddle of verse 15 and cannot explain the existence of the word otherwise in verse 16. Uh, for Fee, in verse 15, he claims, I will pray with the spirit means he's praying in a prayer language in his private closet. And I will pray with the understanding refers to ordinary prayer in Greek in the worship service. Well, that puts it on a collision course with everything that Paul has said to this point. And so let me paraphrase. I'll just read a paraphrase that I wrote here to fill out these two verses. You follow along and see if it does not make sense in verses 14 and 15. In effect, Paul is saying, For if I pray in a foreign language, my spirit prays and thus understands exactly what I am saying, but the clear understanding I possess is not producing fruit in the lives of the congregation. It's not edifying them. Verse 15. So what is the conclusion? To sum up everything that I have said before, I will pray in another language with the Holy Spirit's enabling, but I want to make sure that my prayer is fully understood. I will sing in a foreign language with the Holy Spirit's enabling, but I want to make sure that what I have sung is translated and understood by all. And this was the interpretation, the traditional interpretation of older commentaries like uh, Matthew Henry, Matthew Poole, Charles Hodge, John Wesley. Uh, John, uh, John Wesley said, By the power of the Spirit... I understand the words myself. However, the knowledge I have is no benefit to others. Matthew Poole says, Nor is it here said my understanding is dark or blind, but unfruitful. That is, though I myself understand, yet my knowledge bringeth forth no fruit to the advantage of others. Now, I'm going to skip over most of the other <laughs> indicators of rationality. Let me just highlight two more. Look at verses 21 through 22. 
And verse 21, he says, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Now, if Paul's therefore has any weight, that means that the tongues in Corinth was the same kind of tongues as in Isaiah 28, a foreign language. And everybody agrees that the foreigners in verse 21 understood what they were saying. And then finally, verse 28, he says, But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, if charismatics were correct when they say that the speaker of tongues has no idea what he is saying, that it's the Spirit bypassing our minds, directly praying to the Father, then you would expect that Paul would say, when I speak in tongues, I'm only speaking to the Father. But he doesn't do that. He says, I speak to myself and to the Father, or you speak to yourself and to the Father. Which implies what? They both understand, right? Uh, Everybody agrees God understands what's being said, and thus it's quite appropriate to say you're speaking to him, but how can you talk to yourself unless you understand what you are saying? Now, next week, I'd like to finish off this subject by looking at nine rules that God gives to govern speaking in another language in church. Acts 2 was not in church, but and then we're going to contrast the two passages there. And I was hoping to get to that today because I think that's where the practical ramifications of how we ought to be doing worship really fall out. But uh, for today, let's rejoice that God is a God of rationality. He wants us to think. He wants us to think clearly. He wants us to think logically. Okay, He does not appreciate worship that is mindless worship. What a glorious thing it was for the demoniac to be clothed and in his right mind sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning. That's what God's grace does in our lives. In complete contrast, Romans 7.23 says what our sinful nature wants to do. It's irrational. It says it is, quote, warring against the law of my mind. That's what the world and the flesh and the devil are constantly doing. They're warring against the law or the principle of my mind, but not God. In contrast, Romans 12.2 commands believers by the power of the Spirit, he says, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Ephesians 4.23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Philippians 2.5 exhorts us to exhibit the mind of Christ and never once in the Gospels will you ever see Jesus speaking irrationally. He always was rational in the things that he did. We're to have the mind of Christ. Uh, Paul does not want the accusation to ever be directed against the church that was being directed against it in verse 23 where they said, you are out of your mind. No accusation could hurt Paul more than that accusation in verse 23. Now, if we say things that are not translated, we just talk on and on and on, nobody understands a word we're saying, they're going to begin to wonder if we are irrational in the congregation. What is this guy doing? That he keeps talking on, he's just showing off that he can speak another language, but it's not benefiting anybody at all. An irrational spirit is repugnant to the scriptural vision because first, 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has given to us a spirit of a sound mind. And it's precisely because God delights in rationality that I think we really ought to try as hard as we can to make translation available to foreigners who are in our midst. I loved it at Trinity when we had a booth at the back and we had two translators who were back there and on the fly they were translating 
for people, and they could turn their earphones to Spanish or to Chinese. Well, there was an English channel too, but why would they listen to that? They could hear that, right? But on the fly, that they could do that. That was such a blessing to those people in the congregation, and yet the whole congregation was edified. And I would delight if there were multiple people who could speak other languages in this congregation, whether it was miraculously given or you had to do the tough work of learning it, like God usually makes us do, right? Uh, it would be such a blessing, such a wonderful thing. But let's lay aside that which does not fit Paul's admonitions. Let's lay aside irrationality. Let's affirm that the Spirit never bypasses the mind. Now, certainly he transcends the mind, doesn't he? Because his, his words and his thoughts are way above our thoughts, but he never bypasses the mind. He can overwhelm our minds, but he doesn't bypass the mind. And so it's my prayer that we would become a fruitful church by increasingly becoming a church where our minds are being transformed by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. They are captivated by the Word of God. They're not lazy, but our minds are being used to the glory of God and for the edification of the whole church. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your Word. It is clear, but many times our muddled heads are not clear. And if there is anything, Father, that is straw chaff, hay, wood, or stubble in my sermon. I pray it would not find uh, any uh, ground to grow in in this congregation. But Father, I pray that the words that really do come from your scripture, the words that are clear and that you want us to hear would bear fruit to your honor and to your glory. Father, do be glorified in our midst. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.